Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Do you remember what it was like, Sherry, when you realized you needed recovery, too, and you actually started looking into scheduling those first therapy appointments? I'm curious, was that a feeling of, you know, what the hell? I'm not the alcoholic. Why do I have to do the work? Or was there relief involved in realizing, oh, I deserve to be healthy too? I I don't know. What was it like for you? I think I was kind of a lot of feelings. I was fearful. And I think I was frustrated that, yes, I would have to do work for the recovery because of our alcoholic marriage um, kind of feel like maybe I was a little bit vindicated because I had asked you when you were drinking like years before like if I could start seeing someone and finally you said yes that you thought it was okay because you were That's a good very <clears throat> Go ahead. No, you're making a good point. Before I was pro therapy, I was very anti therapy. Yeah, you were very much against it and you felt like that it was going outside the marriage, spilling our problems and I was saying Sounds like a secret of alcoholic, doesn't but you, it? But I kept saying I think it's stuff that I brought into the relationship and I wasn't realizing the impact of my childhood and then how it was correlating with our marriage, but long story longer, I guess, like I screwed up and missed the appointment and I had it on the wrong day on the oh, calendar. Oh, I forgot about that. And you yeah. were like, see, that's just the God's telling you <laughs> divine intervention. And so then I never did it again because I didn't want to go through that argument and harassment. God, and I was an asshole. How did you stay with me? You deserve a medal. So... So yeah, I think by the time that you were sober and things weren't getting better, I realized that it was everything altogether that needed to be addressed, like my upbringing and our relationship and my self-esteem and, you know, communication skills. I'm not very good at it still. Yes, you are. There's a there's a lot of people who believe <clears throat> Just everybody should be in therapy. It should just be what we do. It's healthy to have someone outside of your close friends and family to talk to about stuff. You know, count me in to that list of people who believe that that's a really good idea. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you're, you know, you're acknowledging and agreeing with that because, it, yes, alcoholic marriage, capital T trauma, lots of serious stuff to work through, but also some. Maybe less serious stuff or some baggage that you're carrying around. And so that's that's interesting. We've talked about this before, but I've never really kind of come away with this idea that, yes, you needed your own recovery, but you also just needed, you know... An a, outlet. An outlet, right. And some help and perspective on things because sometimes we can get very, not self-absorbed, but we can get very caught up in that victim mode because that's what I had felt like I had fallen into a little bit towards the end of your drinking and the early part of your sobriety. Um, so I, I didn't want to do that because I saw family members of mine kind of take on that role of, like, victim. So, you know, but then then I had my own feelings and thoughts about the kids and the struggles I had with them and the behavior issues that I feel like I could would try to talk to you about, and you were less than receptive so, yeah, it just has to, it can just be day-to-day stuff that you have to talk to a therapist about. Well, I think that's a great reminder. I, I also want to remind our listeners that you and I are not therapists. We're not psychologists. We don't want to be therapists or psychologists. But there's another outlet for addressing your stuff, your recovery that you deserve from alcoholism, whether you're the 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 drinker or the loved one of the drinker. Um th- People who do therapy and some form of group work have a, 
a tremendous amount of success often in making progress and getting healthy. So I just want to remind our listeners that we have that peer support piece group work available, both in our Echoes of Recovery group and our Shout Sobriety group. Echoes of Recovery is for the loved ones. Shout Sobriety is for the drinkers. And so if you're, you know, if you're listening to this podcast on a semi-regular basis and you're feeling like that's a good start, but you need something more, we're definitely here for you. We, I mean, the, the people that we have in our groups are genuine, honest, frank, uh, you know, bent but not broken people who are just trying to get healthy. And uh, we want to roll out the welcome mat for anyone else who would like to join us. We're, I mean, you and I get so much out of interacting with these people. It's, we don't, it's not that we have a lot to offer. It's that the group dynamic has a lot to offer. I was just going to say that. I mean, we're not just being the leaders of the calls and, and doling out all the information. Like we're learning from each other. We're a community. Absolutely. And speaking of community, uh, we've got some community podcast episodes coming out. We're, you know, this is embarrassing to admit, but spring and fall, uh, when soccer season is in full swing and I'm a high school soccer coach, it's hard to get the kind of extra stuff done. But as we're wrapping up a spring season, uh, we've got the bandwidth to coordinate some really exciting roundtable episodes coming up. One is going to be on vacations as we roll into the vacation season. Uh, that It's interesting because I've known for years how traumatic vacation is for you, but I didn't realize that that's a somewhat universal feeling, especially when you've uh, experienced life with an alcoholic and going on vacation with an alcoholic. Uh, vacation is and always has been drinking or not drinking mostly upside for me there's I look forward to it even if even if it ends up being rotten or I end up having you know tough conversations or just situations that I don't enjoy I seem to compartmentalize we alcoholics are good at compartmentalization so I seem to block all that out going into vacation I'm all like woohoo time off work let's do it um, but for you, it's it's fraught. I'm actually using the word of somebody else in one of our groups that we correspond with. And there's lots of baggage going into vacations. And so we're going to have a roundtable episode where it's not just you and me, but we're going to hear from lots of people and their perspective on the challenges going into vacation. And then another roundtable episode that I'm really excited about, because this is a perspective that you and I can't share because we haven't lived it. But we're, we have a good number of people in our Echoes of Recovery group who have made the intentional choice to part company from their alcoholic and they've moved on and their healing continues, their progress, their recovery continues without the alcoholic in the picture. So you and I can represent the situation where the alcoholic gets sober and you try to recover the marriage. This is a different perspective. This this is people who have left the marriage, um, but that's not a death sentence to leave an alcoholic marriage. There's lots of wonderful <coughs> life to live on yes. that side. So. I mean, I think um, I'm excited to listen to this one because these are people that are working on their recovery and their healing and their new life. And um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of grief and um, grieving Um but I think, like, because I grew up with my parents divorcing. My mom left my alcoholic father when I was two. But they still had shared custody. Mm -hmm. But there was nothing like this. And there was no talk about necessarily healing. Maybe there was an Al-Anon thing. But my mom never received sort of any any sort of therapy or, <coughs> excuse me, peer support or anything. And I just see her struggles. And I wonder how much better it could have been for her. Well, we... <coughs> Sorry, it's getting me a little... You're emotional think, already, yeah. Terry, I think about it because I think, gosh, what she missed out on and what some of these people that are going to be on our call have accomplished and done and, and the work that they've done. I'm just so impressed and proud of them. Well, just like there's societal connections with alcohol that are just damaging and destructive, like the fact that we think alcohol has to be involved in every event from celebration to mourning... And it's causing all this damage in our society. There's also a societal connection with divorce. Divorce is largely often considered failure. 
And we're going to have some people on this episode that are going to talk about how divorce is success. Like, let's not beat around the bush. It, it's Nobody gets married with the intention of getting a divorce, but we're, when you're stuck and you're in a bad situation and you have two options and neither of them are good and both of them are going to be excruciatingly hard and you choose the one that's going to benefit you for the rest of your life, you know, I, I, I just, I think it's a shame that, oh, oh, you got divorced. Oh, that means your marriage failed. No, your marriage didn't fail. You as a human succeeded in creating a path for yourself that can lead to peace and joy and recovery. So as you can tell, I'm a fan of all the people that are going to be on that particular episode. Looking forward to it. Let's jump into the listener question, Sherry. And reminder to everyone, if you would like us to address your listener question, send us an email at matt at soberandunashamed.com. You won't get a clinical answer from a therapist, but you'll get an answer from a couple of people who've lived through a bunch of gunk. And what could be better than that? The gunk liver's opinions. Listener question for today. My spouse can't seem to accept reality. He won't discuss the past and refuses to talk about alcoholism, which means he won't acknowledge that I've been through trauma. He is sober, but not recovering. How do couples work through this? Want to take a stab? Well, I think it's pretty hard if the alcoholic isn't recovering, because I don't think they're... Pretty hard, but really common, sadly. (laughs) Yeah. I I worry that they're not going to be appreciative because they're they're not they're not I guess humble is the only word that comes to mind I think when you do recovery work and rediscovery work it's an education and a learning and I think there's a piece of humbleness to it that happens where it allows you to see the other side without being defensive and I feel like that would have been really hard for us I mean, that's one reason I did my own recovery and I still try to not be a jackass (laughs) living in the past and being pessimistic. Um, Because I think think that that would be really difficult to encounter because they're not trying to understand the damage that has encompassed the relationship. Yeah, I think that humbleness, that humility you speak of, that leads to empathy. And if you're not doing your recovery work, if you're just white knuckling it and not drinking alcohol, you you carry as the alcoholic, you carry a lot of resentment yourself. And think resentment of those is bad, man. And think of those, you know, what dry drunk behaviors are so similar to the drunk behavior that the behavior pattern hasn't necessarily changed. Yeah. So it's yeah. hard to bump up against that and try to be the one in recovery work. I mean, I know that there are lots of people and people on this future roundtable that have left. A lot of them have not been able to reconcile their Ooh, that's a good point. resentments. So they've had to find different outlets and different ways to process that. I think it's, I think it's more challenging. Yeah, I'm thinking of a not couple. Not as satisfying. I'm thinking of a couple of people that are going to be on that roundtable where they're Husband did get sober. He just didn't didn't want to do any work to get healthy. Mm-hmm. And so the resentments never got processed and a lot of the behaviors didn't change. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing more important. There's things that are equally important, but there's nothing more important to my growth personally than recognizing the trauma, the real serious trauma that my alcohol consumption puts you through. It allows me to feel empathy for you. It allows me to do the resentment processing work where we go back and we talk about the situations that were traumatizing and chaotic for you and acknowledge that your story is the truth. It allows me to communicate with the kids in an open and understanding manner and and recognize that some of the behavior patterns that they exhibit that are less than desirable are a result of living with me as an alcohol active alcoholic when they were younger. Um, you know, so obviously that's nothing to glorify, but just recognizing that it happened is the first huge step toward healing from it. If, 
if you're just going to be like, oh, I don't want to talk about the past. I'm sober now. It wasn't as bad as you thought it was. The relationship is doomed. I mean, I don't know how, I don't mean to be all dramatic, but I don't know how you come back from something that's traumatic when one of the two partners won't recognize the trauma. You know, it's like getting in a motorcycle accident and spending six months in the hospital and one of the two people ignores the fact that you had road rash on 90% of your body or whatever. Obviously, that's a weird example. But, yeah. Rec- yeah, I think that it's it's almost like you're living different, you know, different relationships. Yes. <laughs> you're like, you know, you're you're going down the same road, but it's not exactly in your parallel lives in a lot of ways. Like, different realities, different perspectives. Yeah. And I want to sound gloom and doom. And I'm sure, like, when we had um, one of our guests on who's one of the uh, people that participate in Echoes, they talked about staying and and staying well. Is yeah. that the, the term and the book and program that she used? Staying well, I believe and if so. You were, if you were going to stay, how you can do it with this type of relationship. I think you have to, I think in that kind of relationship, you'd have to have a lot more support outside of your um, partner. Yeah. And, and I hope that that wouldn't cause strife between the two. Like yeah. the alcoholic or that's it's sober might have some jealousy issues or feeling like they're left out, but maybe not. I don't know. I feel like you'd have to have a bigger support system, a stronger support system. Yeah. If you're going to do that. Yeah. Well, you know, we've talked about, I think all the issues that are related, but in direct answer, to this listener's question, how do couples work through this? There's a time component. There's a huge consistency component. The, the, you know, alcoholic has to create a peaceful environment in sobriety and do that consistently over and over, week after week, month after month, year after year, and um, work on building the trust and the intimacy but that all starts with recognizing that the trauma is real, processing those resentments, dealing with any issues with the kids. I mean, there's a whole cycle to it. We talk a lot about it. <clears throat> Another upcoming episode that we're going to have that a listener just suggested yesterday to me is, you know, we talk about all these things, trauma, resentment, processing, kids, trust, intimacy, but we we really need to lay out the time frame of what that was like for us what did we do at what stage? How long did each part of it take? With the understanding that A, not everybody is going to move through it the way we did. And B, we didn't know what we were doing. No one was offering us any advice. And so our timing maybe took even longer than it necessarily has to. But these are all parts of the process for the couples working through it. And it definitely starts with that alcoholic in sobriety, getting some recovery help, finding a tribe, finding people to talk to. Therapy is great as well. Individual therapy. You know, I'm a fan of marriage counseling, but not right off the bat. I mean, until, because here's what builds the relationship back to a place of strength. Two individuals that are strong as individuals that can come together and handle each other's stuff and support each other. And if you're both weak and hurt and traumatized and bent, not broken, then it's really hard for you to make any kind of progress on the relationship. You're nodding. I appreciate that. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. I don't think it's impossible. I'm not saying that. And you're right. Consistency, even if, you know, consistency that the alcohol is removed over time, maybe they'll soften their edges a little bit. And then if you're getting work and healing in the meantime and finding ways to connect with them, you know, and rebuild. But I think it has, you have to also kind of look at it like it's going to be a new relationship. Maybe not rebuild, but build. Yeah. Yep. I want to transition, but not very far. Let's get into the main topic of our podcast, which is related to the listener question. Thank you again, listener. Esther Perel, my guru, my fave. Uh, Belgian-American psychotherapist and uh, just 
really awesome, wonderful person. And Amber Hollingsworth, who has recently been on our podcast, and we've done some work with her. She's got the Put the Shovel Down YouTube channel. Uh, big fans of her. Both Esther Perel and Amber Hollingsworth both have recently talked about seeing their partner in his element, doing his thing successfully, and that that is attractive. So I, I think... I think that's it. It's so interesting to me that they both said that we we did something with Amber just very recently for her audience, and she talked about that again, and so that's why that's in the top top of mind. I gotta say, when she was talking about it, she was talking about like hanging something and how he got the level out and everything. Oh, he got the level out. <laughs> and I was laughing because I was thinking, of, oh God, Matt and a level like you were the. We haven't decorated our house in a long time. We moved in nineteen years ago. Or 18 years ago, and we've hung things, and they've pretty much stayed there. We have very old... We've we, repainted well, okay, rooms. But not hung things. Like, we've been very nervous about hanging things. And actually, right over my head in our office was was a pictures. And I remember, like, you were all, like, measuring and the level and the placement. And it was because we have a very old house that has... Oh, like plaster walls. Plaster walls. Wall. Yeah. So it's there, it's there, you know? So, let's, when she said that, all I kept thinking was, I was like, oh, Jesus, like, how long is this four-hanging thing going to take? So, when she was talking about being excited, you being in your element, I was like, oh. I so, I when was I like, get I out just the had, level... I had to leave the room, like, I don't want to be a part of this, because you're, 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 you're very anal in a lot of ways. And I said, you would make a great carpenter, because you don't measure twice. You measure a lot, which is great. So Esther and Amber find it attractive to find to see their partner in their element with, as Amber said, with the level. It doesn't sound like you find your anal husband to be attractive when he gets out the level. Well, I just remember like... That's not our, my element, apparently. When when we had other houses, you'd be like, that, that's crooked. I'm like, I'm, it's not crooked. It's not crooked. Because I'm like, I just hung it up. It's not crooked, but well, it could be a little bit. Anytime I need to hang something, I'm going to make sure you're not around. Because yeah. I don't think that's me in my element, apparently. So speaking of... Well, the arrangement's very nice. And oh, it thank is you. very measured and, it look, you know, spaced I feel like out. you feel There's... obligated to give me a compliment now. No, I just... I was that laughing. one's crooked right there. I'm looking right at well, it. Well, because I dusted it the other day. Yeah. Or actually two weeks ago. <laughs> 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 and it... That's why I'm like, wait, you still have some dust on it. But yeah, you got dusty because it's a little too high for me to reach. Well, we'll have to fix that. So we're talking about the things that are attractive, but let's talk about, imagine how unattractive it is to see your partner, or as Amber would say, to see my man with her Southern accent, which I just love so much. I love Amber. Uh, imagine how unattractive it is to see your man or your partner Blaming you for not being supportive. Calling you a nag or being critical. Or or calling you critical, pardon me. Calling you a nag or calling you critical. Um, if they feel like they're being, you know, nagged for not pulling their own weight. Uh, that, that, this is, I think this is big. This is big. Um, if you... You know, juxtapose the, this is what is attractive, you and your element doing your thing, and me watching you take command and take control and, and uh, you know, be a leader of your stuff and get your stuff done. And then you juxtapose that with uh, being blamed for not being supportive enough or being called a nag or called critical. Um, that would be hard. You'd be, you'd have a hard time finding me attractive if I was you know, constantly telling you, Sherry, you're not supportive enough and uh, you're a nag. Fair enough? Yeah, because I think we lived that a lot. Talk when about it. drinking. Talk about it. Like, well, I it just, I think of the attempts when you did try to quit drinking. Um, you know, I was told that I was unsupportive. Yep. That I was just making things harder. I, I wasn't giving you the space and the grace and the room and the accolades, I suppose, that you felt that you needed because I didn't understand 
how addicted your brain was to alcohol. So for me to say, I'm just not going to drink today, that's a pretty easy thing. So, yeah, seems I wasn't... Seems to you like a pretty easy yeah, thing. Yeah, seems to me like a pretty easy thing. But I, I guess I wasn't supportive because I wasn't aware of how hard it was for you. Um, but I also realized, like, what was I supposed to do? Like, you know, I don't know. So I I think you did the right thing. I don't think that's on you. I, but I mean, there were lots of to... arguments and times where you said I wasn't supportive, and there were lots of times when you were drinking that if I would bring something up to you and earlier in the day, and maybe you stewed on it and you drank, then there would be an argument later, and it would be how nasty I am, how much of a nag I am, how I ex- have high expectations, how I'm critical, you know, how I'm never thankful and grateful about things. Yeah. I, I I know I behave that way and and that's that's the point that's alcoholic behavior and when we carry our alcoholic behavior into sobriety which happens a lot happened with me like you mentioned there were multiple times where I was in an early sobriety stage and I still just thought you needed to support me more and you needed to get off my back more but I have a different opinion now I, I, listen Getting sober is one of the hardest things a human can ever do. I don't want to discount that. I don't want to make it sound like, you know, just put on your big boy pants and get sober and and do the right thing. But if if you want the sobriety to last, if you want the recovery to last, and if you also want to improve your relationship in the process, it's going to be hard. And we need to, as alcoholics, we need to look to ourselves or our support group for the attaboys and the accolades and the congratulations. We need to not pin that on the person that we've traumatized and made feel unsafe. It is not your job as the spouse. It is not your job as my wife, Sherry, for you to tell me good job for not wrecking your life any more than I already have. That's a perspective I was not capable of processing in early sobriety because I didn't realize how much damage I had done. But now what I say is if, you know, if if you were nagging me, you know, I don't like that word, but if you were encouraging me to be more active around the house and to pull my own weight and to interact with the kids or anything like that, my answer to that now is uh, consider doing that, Matt. Consider doing what you're being advised to do as opposed to complaining about the fact that I'm being asked to do it. Does that make sense at all? Yeah. And, and I want to say like, again, I, I didn't understand how addicted your brain was and how this pattern you'd set up for yourself with drinking and how taking that and removing that was going to be hard. I'm not saying that, Oh, I should have done things differently, but to me, it just didn't make sense sense why I needed to congratulate you and, you know, give you more attaboys because I was so disconnected with the addiction piece of it. Well, so even if, but even if you are familiar with that, you know, I think you did it right. Even if it was accidental, I think you did it right. If you, if, if I went out and murdered somebody and then I felt bad about it, I wouldn't expect the person I had murdered, I wouldn't expect their family to be my support system. If you are the spouse of an alcoholic, you are the person, in most cases, I mean, certainly there are tragic drunk driving incidents or, you know, other assault. There are other physical things that happen. But in our case, and in many cases, the spouse of the alcoholic is the one that gets the most damage done to them. They're the person that's made to feel unsafe. They're the person that's traumatized the most. And so of my the victims of my alcohol consumption, you were the greatest victim. So the idea that I need you to get off my back and I need you to be supportive and I need you to tell me that I'm doing good, um, you know, I honestly, I, I reject that. I yeah. think I, I need to go find my own... Self-esteem, well, that was, support. Yeah, and that was part of our situation is that you didn't have a group when you were attempting sobriety several times. 
you didn't have a, a support right. system. You didn't want to have anyone know what was going on. And I was the only one. So there I felt very burdened and bogged down. And so, yes, I could be grouchy. I could be like, ugh. I have to give him now attention yeah. about this when I'm already trying to, you know, take care of myself and the kids. And um, so, yeah, sometimes I probably was like, oh, I don't care, you know, yeah, that you're trying to get sober. And, and that, you know, makes me feel bad now um, that I was, you know, sometimes like that. I wish you didn't feel bad. I think you did um, the right thing. But I think... To the nagging, to the point of nagging, I mean, you mentioned, like, maybe these are things that you're, um, the partner of the alcoholic is trying to encourage the alcoholic to do, and maybe it's a perspective thing. The alcoholic thinks of it being nagging when the sober partner is thinking of it, like, not so much encouraging, but suggesting and pushing because they just want the best for you and they they can see like it's a better pathway. Yeah. And, and like it's out of love. And they want particip- full participation in the family and the family yeah. events, right? Yeah. And yeah. So you're being nagged to work on your relationship with your kids. That's not a criticism. That's not a you're you've been a bad father. You that's a hey, let's be a great father. Mm-hmm. You're sober now. Your son and daughter need you. Yeah. Go like here's a great chance chance for you to interact and rebuild. So, are you saying like then that alcoholic is feeling like they're being nagged yes. and unsupported because they haven't done the work and they don't feel good and confident and their perspective is off? Yeah. Yeah. A bit too. Yeah, and again, it's heavy lifting getting sober and and finding recovery, but. I don't think the situations that we're aware of and the situation that we lived through, I don't think looking back, you were ever nagging me. You had the clear, clearer mind. You had the emotional maturity. You could see what needed to happen. And so when you asked me to do things and do things differently, my my best path would have been to follow your suggestions. The other piece of it is, again, tying this into attractiveness I needed to win you back and I didn't realize it. I didn't realize the degree to which I had lost you. And so if, if I can do something, if I can take over doing the dishes, for instance, and loading and unloading the dishwasher or picking up the kids or attending the kids events or whatever, if I can do that for you, knowing what I know now about how attractive you find that to be me participating in the life of the family Gosh, I need I need to do that because you didn't think much of me at the time. So stepping in and you know again, if 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 I felt like I was being nagged for not pulling my weight, I should have considered pulling my weight as opposed to rejecting the being nagged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess here's the point. I I I would I, having it to do over again rather than get caught up in. You know, can't she see how hard I'm working? And, um, you know, I feel like I am, you know, look how hard I work at work in addition to working on my recovery. I wish I had just said, look, she's the clear-headed one. If this is what she needs me to do, that's what I'm going to do. Because I love her and I want to stay with her and I want the relationship to, to thrive. Not just survive, but thrive. And so if that's what recovery work looks like, great. So imagine how unattractive it is to see your partner blaming you for not being supportive, calling you a nag, or calling you critical. Here's another one. Imagine how unattractive if if uh, you are unable to process resentments because you can't handle the emotions. And listen, we alcoholics in early sobriety, we are emotionally immature. So that is something we need to work on so that we can go there. This kind of ties into the listener question. I think it's important that I can go back anytime you want to and talk about the past. We can talk about any situation, no matter how awful it was. 
and I can handle that. I can get through it because I've worked really hard on the emotional maturity piece. There's a guy in one of the writing groups that I'm blessed to be a part of that just this week, big, big burly guy. He's had a, you know, some rough patches in his life, still yet only in his 20s. Um, like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to paint the picture, but strong, you know, physically strong, just, you know, the kind of guy that you'd expect to see on a football field. I don't know if he ever played football or not, so I don't want to put that on him, but looks like he probably did. This guy wrote a piece. I don't remember what the writing prompt was, but he started his story saying, this is a letter to me. I love me. I love myself. And he said this in a room with about 25 people, I'd say half men, half women. All of them have had rough experiences in their life. And that's how he leads off. I love me and I want everyone to know it. I was so impressed at this guy's emotional maturity and his ability to go somewhere and say something that in some circles would be embarrassing. But this guy was bold and and owning it. I thought that was really great. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. So that's emotional maturity. That's an example of emotional maturity. Well, I, I'm just like thinking how, like you said, he's in his 20s. So maybe he's in between that Gen Z and millennial. And we often, us older generations kind of make fun of them with that. Everybody gets a participation award, but maybe that's a piece of it that, I think a lot of people our generation couldn't say I love me. Yeah. We would, you know, dog on ourselves. Yeah. So maybe that's... We're our own worst critic. Yeah. So maybe that's an element that has him loving and respecting himself. But there's the gender component too, not only the generational component. He's a dude, man. Mm -hmm. And I said, I said, I, I, when he finished reading, I said, I can't believe you just did that. In a room that's half filled with guys, you just expressed an emotion like that. I said, I think it's really hard for men to talk like that. And all the rest of the guys, every single one of them, because I did a little poll. I said, raise your hand if you think that would be a hard thing to say in front of a room full of people. And all the other guys raised their hand. And a lot of the women in the group, honestly, were like, why? Why would that be hard to say that you love yourself? Mm-hmm. So... <clears throat> There's definitely that gender component, but it is very, I mean, I I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I know I talk a lot, so maybe our case is a little different where it's not attractive when I talk about my emotions because I talk too much. But if you're not a big talker, um, being able to have the emotional maturity to do the resentment processing because you're comfortable with yourself and you give yourself that self-love, it's a big deal. Well, and just throwing out from the other side of the street, it's hard to it's hard to verbalize those resentments, probably in a lot of relationships um, in you know in in the later part of early sobriety, like when you're trying to work through that. you know I, I know that you had a, a question about like kind of putting a timeline but I think it's hard for the person who's been stifled and worried about what they're going to say to share so when that is received well um, without a lot of you know negative emotion that makes it a little easier but we don't know what we're going to get so even to process the resentment resentments takes both people to have courage. Absolutely. To to listen and to express. Yeah. Need to feel like it's a safe place. Yeah. The resentment processing is part of rebuilding trust, but you need some level of trust to do the resentment processing. Mm-hmm. Ugh, alcohol is a diabolical substance. Puts us in these really painted in the corner kind of spots. So I want to talk a little bit about detachment and how this ties in with this whole subject. Um, You know, when we talk about detaching, it's not to trick your spouse into sobriety and recovering. 
Detachment is for the person doing the detachment. It is for the loved one of the alcoholic. It's for standing up what you for what you deserve. So you deserve a spouse who pulls his own weight. You deserve a person who is tough enough, who is strong enough to hear the hard stuff and keep going and move through it and deal with it. And you deserve to not be blamed um, to not, or yeah, to not be blamed for another person's unhappiness. And so, <laughs> pardon me, when in early sobriety, when we alcoholics fire back and say, you know, get off my back, you're nagging me, um, you're not supporting me enough. You know, that that's putting a lot on you. you. You're the person who got traumatized, and yet you're being told you're not doing something good enough. And that's where I think that that's, that's the tie-in here. That's why I think the detachment is so important. It's not, I mean, a lot of people try detachment because they read it in a book, or they heard us talk about it, or they know it's a thing that they've heard about in Al-Anon. And they do it because they're trying to elicit a certain behavior from their drinker. They're trying to get them to quit drinking. And we tell people all the time, you know, you're not going to be effective at detachment right away. And you're not going to be effective if you're just doing it because you heard it from a book or read it in a book. You, you're going to be effective at it because you're there. You are at the end of your rope. You don't want to be engaged anymore. You want to separate yourself from the chaotic and traumatic situation. And so the the twist that I want to put on this for people, or I'm hoping that they can see, and I'm hoping you understand too, Sherry, is don't detach to try to make your spouse do something. Detach because you deserve it. You deserve to not be responsible for someone else's happiness. You deserve a partner who pulls their own weight. Um, and you deserve to have a partner who can hear the hard stuff. And if you're not getting that, then, you know, detach for now and find that elsewhere. And maybe that person will come around and do the work they need to do to heal. That's what happened in our case. I mean, none of it was intentional, right? We didn't understand any of this. But you detached because you were done. And it forced me to look inward to find my own, you know, healing and strength and figure out how to, how to, uh, get through early sobriety without a bunch of attaboys from you. And you got what, you know, I think maybe I'm sounding braggadocious here, but I think you got what you deserved. You got someone who can listen to that stuff and doesn't rely on you for, I don't rely on you for my self-esteem and I do do my best to pull my own weight around the house. What do you think? What do you think about the, all that? Detachment as not to force a behavior out of someone else, but as because that is what you deserve. Yeah, I, I mean, like you said in, a few minutes ago that we didn't, you know, know what we were doing and it was just kind of happened. I think you can't detach unless your feelings are there. Because um, there's so much intertwining in the relationship that if you tried to detach... But maybe you weren't strong enough and you weren't feeling kind of done and over it and just so wore down by their behavior, then you're going to detach. But there's going to be that that desire to still like, I'm going to try to micromanage this person from my detached seat. But still, I mean, that would be the codependence piece. You're still not fully doing it because you're going to be checking in or checking up and checking on the person from a distance, so it's not going to be as genuine. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. I feel like you're going to, you were going to know, like you, I feel like, knew when I was not engaging with you and I was detached. Right. It was evident. Yes. You're good at detaching. Because I was, you know, I don't care if you're sitting in there reading, we're going to go do something. Yeah. You know, in your early sobriety and you were reading a book on alcohol. Um. You know, and you can come or you not. I don't care. But I think that if you don't feel it in your gut and in your heart, you're not going to be able to do it well. Yeah. 
and you have to be at the end piece and you also have to you have to understand that yes it is for you but you also it's a self protection too yeah. you have to break that cycle of wanting to check in and give advice and look up on the the alcoholic you've got to let the alcoholic do the work that they think they need to do yeah and if it's not a plan that's seeming like it's working then you can address it <laughs> like if you feel like their recovery work just not drinking you know is that's their plan and then you can address and say it's not enough but if that's what their plan is and they're sticking to it and it's you know you're just going to have to kind of break that cycle of wanting to interject and yeah. that's hard yeah well y- your detachment was an instigator in creating in me a feeling of empathy and compassion for what you had been through. And I think that's really important. And it continues to be important. It continues to play out in our relationship. You have recently been feeling kind of frustrated. And, you know, there's been a little bit of, you know, kind of negativity swirling around. And, you know, my go-to wasn't just to blame you. And to tell you you're being a nag or, or what, you know, why are you acting this way? It, you know, we, you and I worked together to troubleshoot what was getting you down. You know, your mom had back surgery in December and the recovery, it's going better now, but it, it was a rough recovery there for quite a while. And so that was stressful for you. Um, Like all of us, you have challenges at work that you're dealing with. There's always... You know, there's always kid stuff, whether it's illness or, you know, May is specifically a really busy time of year. End of school, everything gets kind of crammed into the end. Uh, We've got a cat that's sick and everyone who listens to us knows how much you love your cats. And so you don't want to deal with anything like that. As I mentioned earlier, soccer season, I'm not around very much. And so I'm not around to pull my own weight to the degree I should be. And so... That's hard. And then, da 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 da, to tie it back into the roundtable discussion that we're having soon, uh, we're going on vacation soon. Let's correct. It's going to be an extended vacation. We're, I think that calling it a vacation is a fucking a joke. A mistake. <laughs> I'm not just going to say a mistake, a fucking joke. And I think last night we addressed that we're not going to call it vacation. Okay. We're going to serve. We're going to reunite with our families, extended families, and re- yes. It is not vacation. Okay. Well, if and that's if yeah, you're yes, that's an a intuitive listener, listeners, you just picked <laughs> up on what the issue was of that litany of issues. <laughs> that's the big one that's been causing the frustration. But the point is, you know, <sighs> it's a ton of little things, and then it's one big thing, but it all ties together, and right. it's looming. And I felt that way for weeks now. Right, but the. And that's good that we figured that out. But the point that I'm trying to make is, rather than say, why are you nagging me? You know, I need you to be supportive, Sherry. Stop being a bitch. You know, instead of doing that, we said, okay, something's not right. Let's try to figure out what's not right. It's very negative. (laughs) But that was... But let's not blame you for that. Let's figure it out. Right. And you see the distinction? Yes, yes. And I know that I'm a pessimist, so it is probably really hard for you to walk in after two teenagers squabble that they have such different personalities or squabbling and I'm like, fuck it. Just I this is why I like the cats better, but I try not to say that. So I'm sure that's hard for an optimist to walk in after you've had a great day. And it's like walking under the rain cloud. You're like Charlie Brown. The rain cloud's following us. We're the rain cloud. But, I mean, yes and no. It Yes, it's hard, but it doesn't bring about a reaction of negativity toward you. It brings about a reaction of, this is not how Sherry normally is. Even though, yes, you're a bit of a glass is half empty and I'm a bit of a glass is half full. There's usually still... A glass that's got 50% water in it and lately it's felt like we're at 2% water so well, that's what I felt like so troubleshooting as opposed to getting on you about that is the point and I yeah I realized that you weren't I realized that we for 50 minutes now it sounds like a 50 minute brag for me and I 
When I wrote these notes, I didn't see that coming at all. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to... The point is, if you are the spouse of an alcoholic, this is what you deserve. You deserve to be treated with respect. You deserve to not be responsible for someone else's happiness. You deserve to not be called a nag. You deserve someone who's going to help you troubleshoot your frustration and well, and work through and walk through. That. Like having a conversation, I'm not great about getting to the point of what I have to say, and I have to verbally process. And on a very limited, short supply of time that you and I have had together, where we've had freedom. That could be very frustrating for one party, for me to just verbally process and, you know, and then it's like, oh, it's, I I mean, I listed like a bazillion other things before then I was like, and then we're going to be gone and, and it's not vacation, yeah, you know? So it was like all these things, this buildup. And then it was like, and I'm sure for a lot of people, they would have been like, well, that's it. That's the big thing. But you were patient and you listened to all the little things. That was adding up to the big thing at the end. Well, I know and you're right. I'm sure you didn't mean to. I just didn't know have it be a brag, but I also didn't know because you were because a lot of people aren't respectful of one another in their relationship, and that's the hard thing. And so that's what everybody deserves. Yeah. Whether you're a fast processor or a slow processor. So that's the point. I think we want to leave people with demand what you deserve. Oh, I want to add something. Please. So when I was, when Amber was talking about their partner in their element. Yes. I love watching you coach. I think it's cool when I drive past the school and you're out on the field and you're directing and, you know, you've had two of our kids that you've coached and I wouldn't say that I've come to every soccer game. all four of our kids? Well, like for high school. Oh, at high school. I was going to say at a high school level. Sorry, sorry. You know, I didn't come to all the games because I had younger ones and you were there. But that is something I appreciate and love watching you do is to coach the kids because you're out there in the middle of the field with them if it's practice and you're having fun and you're showing respect. And even if you're yelling on the sidelines during a game, it's because you're protecting your team and your kids. And I love watching you take ownership of of your team. That's very nice. And I know how much you love soccer and kicking the ball around. So you look cute out there. That makes my day. Do I look cute with my dyed beer beard? Before the last game of the season, we had a team dinner and I let the girls dye my beard our team color. It's quite it's quite something. It they is. were very they did a good job. They did. They were very I effective. feel like I'm sitting next to someone who's dressed up for a Halloween costume. I look a bit like a clown. <laughs> but that's okay. It's all worth it. And it's a beard, so I can shave it off. Mm-hmm. Better than my hair. <laughs> Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.